Assalamu alaikum and welcome to the American Muslim Community Foundation's podcast, Muslim Philanthropy. Today we have on a special guest, Steve Sosby. He is the president and founder of Palestine Children's Relief Fund. Thank you so much for being on the show today, Steve. It's my pleasure to be here. Thanks for having me. I appreciate it. Of course. Um, so, um, you know, I've been following your work for the last several years and really impressed with it. And everybody that I come in contact that knows you and the organization always speaks highly of what you do. So it's just a real honor to have an opportunity to chat today. Thank you for saying that. It's my honor. And uh, it's a great honor to serve Palestine and to serve this noble cause. For sure. Um, so, you know, I always love starting out with uh, giving our guests the opportunity to share a little bit more about who they are. Um, so, um, you know, feel free to let people know where you grew up, kind of family life, uh, where mm -hmm. you went to school and kind of just t walk us through that. Yeah, thank you. So I'm pretty basic uh, American middle class Midwestern upbringing. My father was a school teacher. My mom was a nurse um, raised in a in college town in the Midwest, Kent, Ohio. Um, in the 70s and 80s, which was, you know, pre-internet, uh, post-Vietnam, uh, pretty special and, um, you know, normal upbringing for the most part. Uh, my parents divorced when I was 13. Um, but despite that, it was a pretty standard, um, you know, general up upbringing. However, I was always interested in international issues and in politics and issues related to social justice. My parents actually were quite active on all issues related to social justice and raised uh, their children to be very conscious and aware of what was happening in the world, not only in our communities, but also abroad and countries beyond our borders. And therefore I was raised even from an early age to kind of try to pay attention and to be sympathetic and um, conscious of how people were having to struggle for the privileges and the opportunities and the rights that we were born with in this country, particularly as a as a Caucasian American male, um, you know, I'm probably the most privileged species in the history of mankind from just those very basic uh, identifying features. Um, but within that context, I was also, you know, from kind of a working class family in the sense that, you know, I had to work my way through college and pay for my own education and stuff like that, which instilled with me a very strong work ethic and a very strong sense of pride and, um, uh, you know, accomplishing for myself and also, um, not being dependent on others to provide for me what I could provide for myself. Of course, those opportunities were in abundance in this country and for the reasons I mentioned before. Um, I, you know, in the town that I grew up with, grew up in Kent, Ohio, we had, before I was conscious of what was going on in the world around me, an incident uh, in which four students were killed um, protesting the Vietnam War. It was May 4th, 1970, a very historic moment. And if you were to Google that, you would find that that's the one redeeming, not redeeming, but one factor that, or one issue that happened in this town then which we're, we're globally famous for. And being raised in a small town with that legacy over it, um, that made us a little bit more conscious, I would say, of uh, issues like what was happening in Palestine. Uh, so when, when I went, started university in uh, in the mid 80s uh, and was working my way through, um, the first Palestinian uprising began. And at that time, I was already active politically on issues related to human rights and social justice, whether it was ending apartheid in South America, whether it was the um, issue in Central America where the US government was supporting the death squads and uh, very far right wing fascist governments. 
um, what happened when Palestine, when the first Palestinian uprising began in December of 1987, um, it resonated with me more than it would probably with students or other young people all over the world, or at least in my country, the United States, because those symbols of unarmed students um, being shot and being uh, brutalized and suppressed by armed military soldiers, which is what was happening in Palestine, also happened at my university in 1970. So I, I kind of had that connection and felt that sense of solidarity with what the Palestinians were going through and started to read up a lot about the history and the context, the political and the historical context of what was the root cause of the conflict in the Middle East. And it doesn't take long if you do so objectively and with an open mind and without applying any kind of biased uh, connections to that region, uh, you see clearly that the Palestinian, the uprooting of the Palestinian indigenous population from Palestine, um, starting with the Zionist movement in the late 1890s, and then obviously with the Balfour Declaration and the British colonization of Palestine in 1917 and the Zionist movement up through and shortly after uh, World War II, in which the Jewish refugees who were brutally, um, you know, had genocide committed against them in Europe, uh, uh, fled to many of them fled to Palestine and um, and started to create a an uh, an exclusionary state, a Zionist state, which denied the indigenous population um, you know, their own national identity and political rights. So um, that's really the root cause, and it doesn't really it's not really a debatable. Um, historical analysis that I just provided there. It's pretty simple and pretty straightforward. How we then apply our own values and our own kind of, um, um, let's just say, what we do about this historical fact is what really is what matters. Uh, I felt very strongly seeing um, young Palestinians struggling for freedom in the West Bank and Gaza and knowing that their brothers and sisters in the refugee camps in Lebanon and Syria and Jordan um, were all um, uh, seeking and struggling for uh, their rights, um, I became very active in supporting the process of trying to educate Americans and my fellow students at the university and trying to share with them some of the knowledge and awareness that I had on this issue. Um, and in the process of doing so, I met a lot of fellow Palestinian students, graduate students mainly at the university, who shared with me their personal stories of living under occupation and how hard life was uh, from a personal point of view, from that human connection, which is essential for these kind of issues. And um, and I just it kind of inspired me to even be more active and to speak stronger on this issue because I felt that I could. I understood the historical and political context. And I think as Americans, you know, we have to apply our values and our, um, uh, let's just say our political values as people who believe in individual rights and individual freedom and the rule of law. And, um, you know, at least in theory, um, you know, th that should be applied to all issues, whether it's uh, Palestine or our brothers and sisters in South Africa or anywhere in the world, those who are fighting the communism and living under totalitarian regimes and so on. However, in Palestine, we had even a stronger, let's say, responsibility as Americans because of our uh, financial support, military support for the Israeli government and how they were using that political, financial and military support to deny Palestinians their uh, their rights. And uh, therefore, we as Americans have even a stronger uh, responsibility to work for freedom and equality there in Palestine than we do in any other issue in the world, in my opinion because of our financial role and the subjugation and the oppression of the Palestinian people. I was chosen to go on a human rights delegation in the first year of the First Intifada, December of 1988, the ADC, uh, the Arab American 
anti-discrimination committee in Washington was putting together tours of the West Bank called Eyewitness Israel. And I was selected to go and see firsthand with nine other college students what was happening on the ground there. And um, it was a life-changing experience. I got to see um, for three weeks during Christmas break between my junior year and college, I saw firsthand um, the hardship and struggle of the Palestinians, the settlements, the refugee camps, the checkpoints, the demonstrations, the um, brutal repression of those demonstrations, um, the confiscation of property, um, the imprisonment without trial, the children who are being injured, the effect of rubber bullets on a child's head, and so on and so forth. I saw that firsthand. And I left after three weeks of touring the Gaza Strip and West Bank, uh, very much inspired and motivated to go back and share that truth with my fellow students and fellow Americans. Actually, that was the main message that uh, Palestinians, when they um, heard about our delegation and what our purpose was there to see what was happening firsthand, was just to share mm-hmm. that truth with uh, with people back home. They were not asking for anything but other, just uh, 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 the awareness that what they were right. un- undergoing was intolerable from a human point of view. Um, so I went back and I finished school and um, you know was very active on the Palestinian issue and went back to Palestine to work as a journalist after I graduated in the early 90s, actually 1990, 1989, and uh, began really um, focusing on um, sharing those stories, everyday stories as a journalist in Palestine. And during the course of um, that work, I met a brother and sister from Hebron, Al-Khalil, in the Southern West Bank. Uh, children who had had their legs, uh, the boy had had his legs and hand blown off and the girl had suffered terrible compound fractures of her legs from an Israeli bomb and wanted to help them. I did a story about it, but I didn't feel that that was ne- uh, the extent of the, my responsibility. Mm-hmm. I think when you learn, the, when you see something that's wrong, you have to, you have a responsibility to try to correct that, not just in uh, you know, writing or speaking, but also in real action. So I went back home to Ohio and um, shared the story of these children with uh, a Lebanese orthopedic surgeon, a Lebanese American orthopedic surgeon in uh, Akron, Ohio. And um, he agreed to help us uh, arrange treatment for this child. And in May of 1990, I brought the first two injured kids to the United States, first two kids who ever came from Palestine to the United wow. States for free medical care. And it was a big story. It was on the front page of the newspapers. It was on the local news. And it was the first time Americans Mm. saw with their own eyes the human side of the Palestinian struggle. They saw with their own eyes the first time children, uh, Palestinian children who were victims of uh, and, you know, of the hundreds and thousands of children who've been injured in the first intifada. These were two living uh, human, um, let's say, symbols in the embodiment of the Palestinian struggle. For Americans to see with their own eyes, and it wasn't, uh, you know, the usual process of the mainstream media, especially at that time before the internet, was to really deny these type of images from being seen by the large majority of Americans. Well, here these yeah. were here were these two children in the local community um, being seen, and people meeting them, and uh, and and it really was my intention as a journalist was to share these stories. And to bring these kind of um, this awareness to my fellow taxpaying Americans, and by having these kids come for treatment in the United States, we were able to accomplish much more than I could ever do as a journalist. So that was a real, um, uh, let's say, uh, imperative for me to continue to help kids. Uh, in addition to that, it really organized and galvanized the Palestinian and Arab and Muslim community and solidarity community people like myself 
in the, in the area where these kids were being treated who took care of them. They came without their parents and uh, it really inspired the community to get active because, you know, people are very much, uh, were very proud of the Palestinians living and struggling and resisting occupation and wanted to find a way to contribute and support that cause. So that was a good way to organize people and keep them uh, really uh, part of the Palestinian struggle. And so, and the most importantly was that it, these kids were getting the treatment they couldn't get back home. So when these kids yeah. went, the brother and sister went back home walking again with new legs and after surgery and months and months of treatment and speaking English and having money now for college <laughs> and all of the things that we could possibly do to help them, mm -hmm. uh, people heard about them and came to me with so many more children who needed treatment. There was a wow. little girl who was burned. Yeah, having a little technical difficulty with the audio. It, yep, it just worked better now. Um, so I, I wanted to ask, and this is all like phenomenal just to kind of hear firsthand from you about how this all started and the stories behind it and the impact that it created in the local community. And what I'm assuming is now the genesis of PCRF about to happen. But what I what I'm discerning from this is that, you know, people who are just now finding about the Palestinian issue because of the social media highlighting all the stuff that's been happening the last several months is like, none of this is new. This has been happening for decades, right? And part of me feels like, is it ever going to get better, right? But the other side of it that brings me such hope is people like you that are thoroughly committed to making life better for the Palestinian people. Um, so, you know, there's just like ebbs and flows and sometimes so many people feel helpless and don't know what to do in these scenarios. But for me, the solution is learning about Palestine Children's Relief Fund, learning about so many other places and people that are helping out to make a difference. And, you know, you talked about like wanting to do more and uh, beyond just the journalistic approach and like taking action and connecting the dots between the surgeon and the kids and everything like that. Like to me, that's what our faith calls us to do, to be leaders in taking action when you see injustice, right? Um, so just kudos to you for that. And, and now that your audio issue is resolved, please resume. Oh no, it's not resolved. Let's see. Um, we'll pause a quick second. Yeah. So as people brought me more children who need medical care, that's when I realized that I could do something more important than being a journalist or just writing stories, which, you know, I think previous to the, uh, internet, and even today, I mean, it's important that we share communicate that we share information, that we try to educate people. That's not it's not an either or situation. That's always a responsibility, and that's what you're doing. And I respect that, and that's why I'm here. Um, you know, I think it's 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 one of the most important things. The fact that we still have people that don't understand this issue from uh, its uh, actual uh, factual context um, is amazing to me because now we have an overabundance of, of information and, you know, a lot of it's obviously distorted and, and, uh, fake, but for the most part, we know really what's happening on the ground in Palestine. And we know the brutality and the suffering and the hardship of the Palestinian people. And we also should know 
the amazing courage and humanity of the Palestinian people and how much they have shown the world this sense of determination and um, resilience, which all of us should respect and admire and applaud and support. Um, so, you know, this is part of it, but I do believe strongly that we have to take real action and each of us has to find whatever uh, areas of action we can do, which fits our talents or our abilities or our time, our resources, our experience, whatever. And mine happened to be, you know, somebody who was on the ground in Palestine. I could serve as, with my communication background as a journalist, I could serve as that bridge between a child who needed medical care and a physician in a hospital in the community that could mm -hmm. take care of them in, in, a, in you know, in, a, in Detroit or Houston or Los Angeles or wherever we could send kids for free care. And that's how we started. And in the course, I met my first wife, Huda Al-Masri, who was a social worker in Palestine. And um, she was working with helping kids there as well during the Intifada. And we met and we fell in love and we started a life and a family together. And she was an instrumental part of building this organization the first 17 years. I mean, she was hardworking, um, dedicated, took care of the kids that we sent to the States. We've sent over 2,000 children for free medical care. And wow. she was just somebody who made it happen with her. Mm -hmm. Um, with her, you know, strength and intelligence and humanity and dedication, she was instrumental in making the PCR for what it is today. In addition to that, um, you know, as we grew, the internet happened and communication became instantaneous, and it became a very powerful tool um, to enable us to reach people and reach places that we never before were able to do so instantaneously in a very efficient and cost-effective way. So before, when I started the organization, I was writing letters on a typewriter and sending them by fax. <laughs> and within a very short period of time, that's, I'm an OG in that regard. Yeah. <laughs> uh, and, uh, and um, you know, within a short period of time, all of this could be done instantaneously with a computer. And, uh, and, um, and that just transformed an organization like ours um, to be more efficient and to have a much bigger impact. And for those 17 years, you know, my wife Huda and I, we built an organization. We uh, really expanded it and started sending teams of doctors there to operate on kids and bringing kids out for medical treatment and starting humanitarian projects and programs. And um, and just, you know, got through the first intifada, you know, the Oslo Accords, everything kind of fell apart. The second intifada, raising our kids. We had two daughters uh, on the ground um, in Palestine living and and just really trying to be build something that could have a positive impact on the lives of the Palestinian people, particularly Palestinian children. Mm -hmm. um, on Christmas Day of 2008, my wife was uh, diagnosed with cancer, mm -hmm. and um, by January, by July 15th, um, which is coming up next week, um, she was the anniversary. She passed away on, in 2009. So, sorry so to hear. Um, yeah, and I mean, this is God's will. These are things that uh, in life we all have to kind of deal with different types of struggles and challenges, uh, unpredictable ones. And um, I think it's important to always remember um, that, you know, if you have faith, and I think most people do, um, that, you know, there is a bigger purpose and bigger, bigger meaning to life than what we see in the material world. Yeah. And if you believe that there is something more beyond the material world, then hopefully that gives you strength to get through periods of this type of loss and suffering and grief and crisis. And I had mm -hmm. two young girls to raise. My wife had just passed away. Um, I went back to Palestine with my daughters and just put all of my grief and energy and focus into building the organization stronger and bigger and expanding our impact and reach and having a bigger, doing a better job. Yeah. And we built the first cancer hospital for children in my wife's honor. She died from cancer. 
uh, named it after her. It's the first and only public cancer department in Palestine. Wow. Still open and functioning, doing a great job in Bethlehem. Uh, and the organization just really became much bigger, you know, with so many factors and so many reasons. The most important reason is because we've stayed true to our culture and to our values, which is to serve the humanitarian needs of Palestinian children and to serve mm -hmm. the cause of helping kids who otherwise can't get the care they need. And, um, and they, you know, using people's different forms of support and talents and resources to uh, change the lives of tens of thousands of kids all over the Middle East, not just in yeah. Palestine, but Syria and Iraq, Lebanon, Jordan, wherever we can have an impact. So, you know, we've yeah. grown into one of those organizations, hopefully that will continue to change and impact uh, these children in a way that gives them hope, love, compassion, and gives Palestinians, and not just Palestinians, but people all over the world who care about this issue, um, who care about humanity, who care about children, who care about justice um, to come forward and be a part of our mission because all of those uh, areas, humanity, justice, children, um, freedom, um, compassion, that's what that's what we're doing. That's our mission is to bring those values and bring those that energy into serving the children in Palestine. That's really beautiful. And, um, you know, I think that with the Palestinian diaspora, especially within um, the Middle East, like, you know, there's so many people who are living in those surrounding countries as well that you're able to then um, help and benefit. And I, I want to talk a little bit and get your insight on how that growth and as a nonprofit leader, like you managed. And I also want to then ask you about like the specific programs at PCRF. So feel free mm -hmm. to um, answer those in any order, um, but would love to hear more about just like the operations of PCRF, what the team looks like now and mm -hmm. how you managed that growth and the programs at PCRF. Yeah, well, I mean, the growth of the PCRF has been pretty tremendous. Uh, in 20, I think we've more than doubled our staffing and our uh, team in the past uh, seven or eight years. Um, we've more than tripled our uh, donations and support we get, and we've taken on much bigger projects. You know, we're completing these multi-million dollar hospital infrastructure projects, which before we didn't have the resources to do. We're completing an intensive care unit for babies, uh, for children in Ramallah, a pediatric cardiology department, and a cath lab uh, also in Ramallah. These are two huge, huge infrastructure construction projects with equipment and so on, multi-million dollar endeavors. We built and opened in 2019 the first and only multi-million dollar cancer department for children in Gaza. So these are tremendous, tremendous uh, um, programs and projects in addition to continuing our core mission of helping individual kids get access to humanitarian aid and medical care. So we provide surgery for Lebanese and Syria, uh, Syrian and Palestinian refugees in, in hospitals in Lebanon and Jordan by crowdfunding for them weekly through our uh, newsletters. And we send hundreds of medical teams to the Middle East every year, uh, pre-COVID of course, um, to provide urgent free surgery for children on the ground as well as um, uh, training for local doctors. We send out dozens of children a year for free medical care they can't get locally. We provide a variety of different types of humanitarian projects for kids who are amputees, for kids who are orphans, for kids who are with chronic uh, medical conditions that require monthly sponsorship. 
Um, so really, we're trying to cover all the different bases. And again, we're not a political organization. We're not a religious organization in the sense that we help any child that comes in need of help. We don't ask them uh, what's their nationality or what's their religion. We help them based on what their needs are. And, um, and that's why we've been able to really grow and build an organization. Uh, we have six offices in the West Bank, mostly small satellite offices in Janine, Tokadam, Nablus, Bethlehem and Hebron, and then the main office in Ramallah. And then in Gaza, we have three, and one in the south in Rafah, one in the central refugee camp of uh, Deir Abala, and then one in Gaza City, which was bombed on May 17th uh, during an Israeli airstrike on the Ministry of Health. So our office was destroyed there. We also have in uh, Amman, Jordan, and in Beirut, Lebanon, offices to ensure that we are providing um, refugees access to the same humanitarian care that we provide on the ground in Palestine. Um, we're chapter-based, volunteer-based organization, so we have mm -hmm. chapters all over the country, about 40 active chapters in the United States, wow. in the Gulf area, in Jordan. Um, we have thousands of volunteers, from doctors to high school kids who give their mm -hmm. time uh, to support our work, and we're very, very fortunate that, um, that people see PCRF as a way, as a symbol of hope and as an organization that they can turn to to help during times of crisis. Yeah, I think... You know, just hearing this in terms of the genesis of the organization and where it's at today, um, it's really inspiring to see your commitment. Um, and tell me a little bit more about just like surrounding yourself with uh, people that you can rely on and kind of leading a you know multi-million dollar organization and kind of like seeing all the moving parts and pieces. Like, what advice do you have? to people who may be in the international relief space or are interested in, um, you know, these types of projects and just a little bit of insight on what it takes to kind of lead these types of efforts? Yeah, I mean, that's a good question. Uh, for me, it was a very natural fit to kind of lead and build this organization. And, uh, you know, as we grew and we took on bigger projects and took on bigger staff and bigger responsibilities and, had bigger uh, um, priorities when it came to fundraising and having the resources that enabled us to take on these bigger projects. Obviously, this became a bigger burden and a bigger challenge, time-wise and uh, management-wise. Um, so, you know, within that context, you do need to rely on people who share the common humanitarian values that you built the organization on, and people who share the same kind of work ethic and dedication to the organization's mission. And that you are remain focused to your true values and humanitarian ideals. Um, for anybody who is looking to um, get into this type of work or wants to do this kind of work, let's say separate from from PCRF, but is interested in doing something on their own in the field of you know humanitarian relief or nonprofit work, I think it's just it's an issue of dedication. Like you really have to live the mission. You have to be part of it. You have to dedicate your life to it. And that's hard because, you know, we have families and we have uh, other responsibilities and, you know, it's it's a challenge to do that. But if you believe in yourself, if you stay dedicated, if you don't allow failure or obstacles or challenges to stop you from what you believe your mission and, and, uh, um, and purpose is, um, then I think it's just a matter of time before you have success. Um, again, part, a lot of people don't reach a point of success because they allow all of the failures and challenges and obstacles that come up in their lives or in their work to derail them. I, can't, I can, if you had a longer program, go through a long list 
of times and periods in the, starting this organization when we, I was close to quitting simply because mm. we didn't have the, because of so many factors and so many reasons. Yeah. Um, uh, but I stuck to it because my main goal was to help these kids. And I knew, mm -hmm. and I believe today that the goodness in people always outweighs um, whatever challenges you have, whether it's human challenges or material challenges or even your own spiritual questioning that we all go through in life, especially when you're younger. Right. Um, you, know, you have to stay true to your vision and to your mission and to who you are as a person. If you believe in what you're doing, you're gonna be okay. That's what so, I So, yeah, no, I think definitely the can-do attitude has a huge significance. Um, and what I would love to hear from you is like, what are some of those resources that you relied on to feel more confident in your own leadership um, in leading this organization? And, you know, a lot of people talk about um, imposter syndrome or talk about... Um, being burnt out, uh, but what are some things that you've held in your um, Rolodex to kind of help you through that? Yeah, I mean, I'm not sure I know what imposter syndrome is, but it's kind of a little bit self-explanatory, but maybe you can define it uh, for me in a bit. But just to let you know, I mean, look, what gets me through and what got me through 30 years of building and running this organization was just seeing the impact that we were having on the lives of the people that we were helping. And, you know, how many times I sat at checkpoints or was turned away from checkpoints or, you know, living in through intifadas and through wars in Gaza and seeing firsthand all of the terrible destruction and brutality and injustice that goes on every day in Palestine. And also the hardship of building an organization and having, you know, people who don't have the same intentions or same values that you might have involved and in undermining frequently the work that you're trying to accomplish. At the end of the day, if you focus on the good that you can do and the people that you can help and the impact that you can have, that's what can get you through. You know, when you reach a point where you can't have that impact any longer or the people around you are just too overwhelming when it comes to the negativity of their intentions, then, it's, you know, you can always move on or, and find something else to do. Yeah, definitely. I think seeing impact and having a vision, seeing it through, um, I'm just, you know, a highly motivated person and I love vision boarding and I love all of those things. And when I put my mind to that goal, like I, I love achieving it. Um, and I, I've often seen myself doing that for smaller nonprofit organizations and having founded AMCF, I, I resonate with a lot of what you're saying as well. Um, but yeah, imposter syndrome is kind of exactly how it sounds. It's just about not feeling the self-confidence or doubting your own abilities or like, how am I the person to lead all of this kind of thing? So it's more about like self-doubt, um, which can often become a crippling factor. Uh, and then um, not necessarily having the resources, the leadership development or the capacity building to get through that can be a challenge. Um, yeah. So, yeah, I think in terms well, of let, like, yeah, go ahead. Let me just say this. I mean, I think that those are natural feelings. I mean, we all go through that. And anybody who has that, that you feel has this overwhelming sense of confidence in their abilities uh, often are that in, in itself is just a facade. And um uh, you know, I think it's natural to feel, uh, especially when you're trying to take on, the, you know, really difficult and challenging endeavors, 
building something from the bottom up or from nothing um, can require, uh, I mean, it does require, um, you know, a certain element of uh, uh, confidence that you have to often just bring upon yourself, even without any justification for it. And but at the same time, you know, feeling a sense of insecurity or uh, this imposter syndrome that you mentioned is normal, uh, and that's natural, and it's part of the development of ourselves individually and ourselves professionally. Um, you know, uh, per, the spiritual development has that aspect to it, and as does our professional development. So it's natural. I think uh, it's, and I, you know, I go through it every single day. So we all have to struggle with these aspects of day-to-day -day life and um, the challenges of living in a society that, you know, looks for immediate gratification or this kind of fake social media world that we live in where everybody's perfect and everybody's yeah. successful. Um, and trying to put that to the side and focus on the, um, you know, micro, success, micro successes that you can achieve for and sure. build on those. And it's hard. There's a lot yeah. of noise, there's a lot of chatter. We all go through it. I go through it. And it's hard to sometimes put those to the side. But uh, And that's often what the challenge is, more often than anything else, is staying true to your spiritual vision and who you are as a person and being confident in your abilities. Yeah, I think that is all great things to keep in mind, especially for people who um, are trying to stick to a goal accomplish it. The micro accomplishments is a, a great way to kind of feel like you've gotten through the day. I know I love uh, listing out all of my to-do lists and I just kind of cross them off as I go along. Um, and I fall behind on a lot of stuff. I feel under the weight of and the burden of having to lead an organization a lot. Um, and yeah, I think the more you can surround yourself with people who share your vision, the easier it becomes to accomplish. Um, so, I you know, do. I've been profoundly indebted to the board of directors and the staff at AMCF, and I'm sure you feel the same way, of just bringing people along in this journey. Um, and, and to me, that's been the best part is being able to work with other people on a common goal. Yeah, I agree 100%. Cool. Um, yeah, is there anything else that we didn't talk about that you, you'd like to share? I mean, you know, these are difficult times uh, in general just because of the pressure for young people. I mean, I suspect you have considering, you know, the technology you're using that a lot of your viewers and a lot of the people who are following your work are young Muslim Americans. And, you know, that's a, that's that we, we have kind of two forces at play here for young people in the United States, particularly young people. Um, young Muslim Americans is that you have so much opportunity and so many resources available to you, like what you're utilizing here, um, to empower you and to do things that your parents' generation and forefathers were had couldn't even imagine the opportunity to reach you know people and to um, use your ideas and your abilities and your creative energies to do something that can educate and change the world. So there's a huge, huge opportunity for people. And at the same time, there's all of this negativity and pressure and forces out there to kind of derail you, whether it's, um, you know, other people who, uh, you know, are giving you the evil eye and don't want you to succeed. It's, um, you know, I'm living in a very materialistic culture and a very materialistic mm -hmm. uh, society that values, you know, uh, um, your looks or your uh, possessions over who you are as an individual and what you're doing 
uh, with your time and your energies. I mean, those are those are day-to-day -day struggles that you have to go through. And I think the only thing I can really say to people who are watching is just, you know, try to reduce the noise in your life. Try to, um, you know, stay off of those channels which are negative and focus on the good things that you can do. You know, your family, your friends, your community, um, your religion, and the people who need your help. You, as all of us, each one of us out there can have an impact in somebody else's life in a positive way. Um, you know, my story is proof of that. I am not an exceptional person. Uh, I don't have a fancy education. Uh, I don't have uh, a huge amount of, or any amount of personal wealth. I'm just somebody who um, believed in something and um, followed a course in life that gave me purpose and meaning. And at the end of the day, I'm now 55 years old, so I've been doing this for over 30 years. Um, that purpose and meaning is what has sustained me through sustained me through the loss of my wife, watching my wife die uh, from cancer. That slow, miserable, painful, excruciating death that cancer is. Mm -hmm. um, and that's you know that's what should energize and empower each of us. The noise of wealth, the fake success that people promote. Um, the judgment and negativity that surrounds us in a material world um, should not be part of who you are or allowed you to dictate your course in life. That's all yeah. I have to say. Uh, this very reflective and, and sombering and just um, a really positive reflection on a difficult situation as well. So thank you so much, Steve, for um, sharing um, your journey, your life, your mission. Um, and I'm so honored, again, just to have these few minutes with you and to uh, learn more about Palestine Children's Relief Fund. Um, I encourage everybody to go to pcrf.net, uh, find them on social media at the PCRF. Uh, if you want to be a volunteer, if you want to be a donor, um, AMCF is so honored to have you in our nonprofit directory and support your work. Um, and I think this is a really great way for people to uh, get a first look at Palestine Children's Relief Fund um, mm -hmm. and really just be inspired by you, Steve. I think that you. Um, you finding your purpose, um, everybody struggles with that. Um, it, it seems that you have been able to uh, put a lot of energy and time into PCRF and it's shown. Um, so definitely be proud of all of the accomplishments. And I know you personally probably have even grander visions uh, ahead of you. So on that journey, just I wish you the best of success. And if there's any way that AMCF can be uh, part of that story and journey, we would be honored to. Thank you, brother. I appreciate that. And keep up the good work there. You guys are doing a great job. And um you know, anytime you need anything from me or from PCR, just let me know. We're happy to help. That means a lot. So thank you again for joining and looking forward to staying in touch. Thank you. My pleasure. Anytime. Thanks so much. Yeah. Bye-bye. Salam. Bye-bye.